For those of you that are new to East Point, or maybe the first time in a long time, this year our theme is Jesus Above All. Now last year, as we approached going into this year, and we looked at what theme would sort of encapsulate what we ought to be doing and ought to be focused on, that's when we came up with that thought. It's really a great theme, not only for this year, but for every day, all through our life. Would you agree? Jesus ought to be first. Now, last week we talked about it. I did not intend to do a series on the theme. But last week we talked about the key verse, Colossians 1 verse 18, where the Bible tells us to give to Jesus the preeminence. And then uh, as the Lord laid on my heart this verse, I began to realize that this kind of continues the, uh, the thought and the theme. Uh, the title of the message is, of course, hashtag first thing. And uh, for those of you that have your study sheets, you want to follow along with us and take a few notes. Before we look further into the intro, though, let's pray together. I think that's important to do, don't you? Let's thank the Lord for the worship we've already experienced and then ask him to do something in us. Wouldn't that be great just to hear from him? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for what our hearts have already felt, what our ears have heard in the way of the message of the songs. And God, we just thank you. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity you've given us to gather today in your name. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and how he gave himself for us. And God, we just pray now that he would indeed have the preeminence in our lives, the preeminence in this church. God, help us. I pray that the Holy Spirit will search our hearts today. God, that you'll speak to us personally and powerfully. Lord, if there's one here today that doesn't know you, I pray they'd come to know you. For those of us, Lord, who do know you, God, I pray that we would examine our hearts and the Holy Spirit would point out to us anything that stands in the way of our putting the kingdom of God and your righteousness first in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me do a little bit of background study with you. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, you'll see that this is the beginning of what is typically called, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the largest discourse recorded of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it it covers all of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7. Well, as you can tell by our reading, our text comes from toward the end of chapter 6. So there's a couple things I want to point out to you. First of all, at the beginning, Matthew 5, we have this uh, passage we typically call the Beatitudes. Many of us are no doubt familiar with that, but look at verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did you see that? The kingdom of heaven. I want to um, share with you that we're introduced, at least in this sermon, to the thought of what he later says and what we've just read, the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, in chapter 6, if you look there, we have, not too far down, uh, verse 9, he begins what is typically called the Lord's Prayer. Now, we know it's a model prayer. It's not actually uh, one that was intended for us to quote, although there's never anything wrong with quoting scripture, but it's one that we should look at and understand as more of an outline of prayer. But here in verse nine, he makes this statement. In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Again, a reference to the kingdom. Well, what exactly are we talking about? And that's where we're going with this. If you come down to... uh, Uh, similar or or closer to the passage we're using for our study, look down in verse 24, Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
Now, Jesus deals with a lot of topics in these three chapters. There, there's a lot of information in there. But when we come close to the verse we're looking at, he begins to deal with a choice that we have to make, a decision that we have to make. Are you concerned about the material things or are you going to concern yourself with him and his kingdom? That becomes the question. Now that concern is called worry. Now I know worry has nothing to do with any of us. <laughs> Amen? So just file this all away for somebody else that might come to you for counseling purposes. And you can, you can share it with them. Picking up in verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? All right, so here we have it. As we narrow in and close in on this um, verse of Scripture that he has demanded, and I think that's an important word. This is not a suggestion. When he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he's being quite authoritative. As a matter of fact, that's what the group actually says when he's finished with the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at the very end of chapter 7, you'll find that the people said he teaches as one that has authority. So there's a great crowd of people that are gathered. This is not just the disciples, although they are mentioned. There's a great crowd of people that are listening to this message as Jesus is teaching it. And again, he goes from uh, making a choice. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to be materialistic minded or you're going to put God at the first in your life. And then he goes into worry. What kind of things are you worried about? What kind of things concern you? What kind of things occupy your time, your energy, your effort, your finances? What is it that concerns you becomes the question. And then in verse 28, it reads this way. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now let me pause a moment. This is not one of the main points, but it's a point we ought to make and it's a point we ought to listen to. Jesus equates worry with little faith. Let me say it another way. Much worry, little faith. Much faith, little worry. So the question is, what exactly are we worried about? And again, what is it that we put as number one in our life? Now what's interesting is, he mentions stuff that all of us would say, these are all important things. Shelter, clothing, food. I mean, these are the basics, am I right? And, and yet he says, wait a minute, there's something here we need to pay attention to. If you're worried about these things, then you're probably spending little time worried about his thing and who he is and depending, uh, depending on him. And so it goes on. It doesn't stop there. Verse 31, look at that. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. Now, let me stop for a moment. The word Gentiles here is very interesting. 
It's not talking about necessarily some group of people. What it's talking about is anybody other than those who have been given a relationship with God. So ultimately what he's actually saying is this. Don't act like the lost. Do you have the same worries and concerns that people who don't know God have? Are, are you living your life with the same type of priorities that those who do not know him, who have no faith, have? And so that's how he challenges. Don't be like that, he said. And then he goes into, your, your heavenly father knows you have need of all these things. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think for one minute that God is caught off guard by your needs? Do you think that he is unaware of your circumstances, of your situation? Do you think he doesn't already know the condition that you're in and what problems you may deal with? You will never surprise him. You will never shock him. You will never bring him anything that he says, you know, I didn't think about that. That's not going to happen. And so he reminds us of that. Then he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now don't stop there. It goes on and says, and all these things shall be added to you. Wait a minute. You mean I can have those basic needs met through him? And not spend all my time worrying about them and being occupied with them? That's exactly what it's saying. Exactly what it's saying. Now, uh, there is a church that posted a sign. I don't think that they actually intended for it to say this, but it came out wrong. We want to show you that church sign, uh, and, and you can read it for yourself and see what we're dealing with. I guess we can get it to come up. Don't let worries kill you. Let the church help. <laughs> Some of you have seen that before, but it's, uh, it's interesting. I don't think they thought that one through, do you? I don't think that's really what they meant. But I was reminded of the engaged couple, young man and young woman. The young woman came to her fiancé and said, I want you to know that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you with all of your worries and all of your problems whenever we get married. And he said, I don't have any worries or problems. She said, yeah, but we ain't married yet. <laughs> so, um, all right. Some of you men are asking your wives, can I laugh at that? Is that okay? No. I'm just... <laughs> All right, so what are we talking? We're talking about, here, here's what Jesus is saying. This is what you need to do. He didn't say, put me among the first things, did he? He didn't say, make me one of your top priorities. He didn't say that. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be added to you. So let's do this. Let's pick it apart. Let's begin with a definition of the object that we are seeking. If you're taking notes, let's define the object that we are seeking. So here's the question for us that lay before us. What are we looking for? If Jesus said, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what is the kingdom of God and his righteousness? That's a valid question. So we're going to explain what these are based on the scriptures. Let me first of all say to you that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are synonymous terms. They, they mean the same thing. I've heard people try to exposit that they mean something differently, but let me prove it to you uh, based on the scripture. Let's go first of all to uh, uh, Matthew chapter 13. Would you look over there with me, please? Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to look at verse 31. Let's just do a little Bible study. Matthew 13 and verse 31. That, by the way, is the most pleasant sound in all the earth to a preacher's ears is to hear the word of God pages being turned. So that's awesome. Of course, I guess we ought to get used to the buttons being pushed on the electronic versions of the Bible. Some of you have beat us there. 
as long as you're not texting or doing Twitter, it's all right. Just... <laughs> Verse 31, Matthew chapter 13. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. Now let's stop. We're not going to examine the parable of the mustard seed, but what I wanted to show you was, Matthew said, the parable of the mustard seed is to explain what? The kingdom of heaven, right? All right, let's skip over to the gospel of Mark now. Would you look there with me, please? The gospel of Mark. And the fourth chapter, so Mark chapter 4. And look down in verse number 30 with me. Verse number 30, Mark 4. If you're there, say, I'm there. If your neighbor's not, stand up and point at him. No, don't do that. All right, verse 30. Then he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? What did he say? The kingdom of God. Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds of the earth. Okay, so Mark says, and you can look up the same thing in, in Luke. What we find is the Bible interchanges the terms. The, the, the writers interchange the terms. There's no difference. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, uh, and, and they refer to the same thing. They're not talking about different things is what I want to get across to you. And so the terms are synonymous. So then comes the question of, what exactly is it? I'm going to give you a rather lengthy definition. It's going to come up on the board here in just a moment on the PowerPoint. So you can kind of follow along with me. But it is not a geographical area. The kingdom of God, if you're taking notes, you might want to write some of this down, refers to the realm of his reign, the lordship of Christ over a people who by faith have had the righteousness of Jesus imputed to them. Now, that's a fancy word I know. It just means transferred. If somebody walked up to you today and said to you, hey, I'd like to meet you at your bank in the morning. I've got some money I want to transfer to your account. And they said to you, actually, it's a million dollars. You'd probably show up at the bank and help them transfer that money, would you? Huh? Some of you would. If not, at least you could just give it to the church. That would work then. That'd be fine. <laughs> But, uh, but, but indeed, you, the word imputed means to transfer to somebody's account. So, so we'll talk more about that in a second. But literally what it means is that Jesus took his righteousness and transferred it to you. So that when God the Father looks at you, when it comes to whether or not you can get into heaven, he does not see your righteousness. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. It is not a geographical kingdom. That's important. You remember Jesus was before Pilate and Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, well, I am. But he said, my kingdom is not of this earth. What he meant was my kingdom doesn't have these borders like the Roman Empire had. It's not of this earth, but it's made up of the people who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. And it refers to the domain he has over those who have confessed him. Now that's consistent with what the scripture says. So here's the question. Have you become part of the kingdom of God? What Matthew is saying, what he's recorded, what Jesus is saying is, the first and foremost thing you better have on your heart and mind is to make sure that the kingdom of God is first. Have you entered into that kingdom? Is it possible to know about the kingdom? Is it possible to have faith but not be in the kingdom? Now, I think that's a valid question and a good question. And the answer actually is yes, it is possible. 
And you might be seated here today and you say, Pastor, do you have any scripture on that? You didn't think I came up here without it, did you? Yeah, I do, matter of fact. In the Gospel of Mark in the 12th chapter, would you look over there with me, please? Gospel of Mark and the 12th chapter. We have an interesting statement, an interesting um, interaction between a, a man and Jesus. I'm going to pick up in verse 28, if you'll follow me there. Verse 28, then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well, asked, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second, like it, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, there is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribes said to him, well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth. For there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all your heart and all your understanding and all your soul and all your strength uh, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Notice Jesus' response, verse 34. Now Jesus saw that he answered wisely. When Jesus saw he answered wisely, he said unto him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Huh? You are not far from the kingdom of God? Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. There will be a number of people who occupy the seat that you are in throughout the course of this year if Jesus tarries his coming who will not be far from the kingdom of God. There'll be people who walk through the doors of our church and drop their children off uh, for various, various ministries that we have who are not far from the kingdom of God. There are people who have a faith like this man had a faith, but what he meant was, you're not close to the proximity of a geographical border that you can simply cross over into. What he meant was, your faith is increasing, but you've not made the decision to call him Lord. You've not yet done what the Bible says do in that you've been born again. So you're close, but you're not there. I want you to hear me now, because there's a lot of people who say, well, I don't deny the fact that Jesus is Lord. They've just never done what he said do. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 9, that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Amen. What are we talking about? If you're part of the kingdom of God, you recognize that he is Lord. And you've made that profession and that confession, and you've called him to be your savior. So I encourage you today to make that a top priority. Among all else, be sure you're in the kingdom of God. Amen? Not just close, but you're in it. You're in it. And then we find this phrase, his righteousness. We referred to that a few moments ago. His righteousness. But let me talk more about it for just a minute. Remember, uh, there was a passage of scripture where Jesus said to the Pharisees, and actually he was talking to a group of people, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you, you'll never even get to heaven, right? Now the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, man, they were pretty righteous dudes. I mean, they, they, were, uh, they were people who lived according to the law. Even Paul, who was a Pharisee, he said concerning the law, he was blameless, Wow. And yet Jesus said this. He said, except your righteousness exceeds that, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what does that involve then? If my righteousness has to exceed that, 
You can't do it, is what he's trying to say. You have to have the imputed righteousness of Jesus transferred to your account, and that is done only through faith in what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. Our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. Now, I know this is a gross thought, particularly when many of you are about to go to lunch. But the term filthy rags in the Old Testament was a reference that was used to describe the rags that lepers would use to wrap their wounds. And they would hang them on trees and let them dry out so that they could reuse them. And what the Bible says is when it comes to our righteous deeds, when it comes to our goodness, if you're looking at what you and I have to offer, it's like those old filthy rags. There is nothing in it that can get us to heaven. Nothing. So you've got to have the imputed righteousness of Jesus. In Romans chapter 4, we find these words. Abraham is used as an example. By the way, Abraham is a, he's an awesome guy. There's no question about it. He's used as an example throughout the Bible of a man of faith. And in this text, we find these words beginning in verse 20. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. Did you catch that? Why does the Bible record that Abraham was, his faith was accounted for righteousness so that we would learn what that was. That's what it says. It wasn't written down just so he could point to it and say, hey, that's me, we're talking. No, no, it was for our benefit that we might know why. But for us also, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. That is, when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we put our faith and trust in Him, then we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Amen. John Gill, a pastor who pastored Spurgeon's church before Spurgeon did, comments on the term, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and calls it the gospel and its ministration. Literally what it's being said and what could be wrapped up here is this. Jesus came on a mission. And the mission was to seek and to save the lost. When you trust the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you make him Lord and Savior, you not only become a part of the kingdom of God, but you become a part of its cause. Amen? And to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness means not only do you make that a priority in your life to become a part of it through faith, but you also make it a priority to do the things that God would have you do. He is Lord of your life and you do not call on him in prayer and say, God, this is what I want you to do today. But you have learned to call on him in prayer and say, God, what do you want me to do today? Amen. There's a difference. Sometimes we treat him as though we are the Lord and he is the servant. Should have been a little bigger amen than that. I thought somewhere, <laughs> crowd this size. Number two on the list. We're making our way right on through. Number two. Not only should we define the object, but secondly, we should desire obedience in the seeking. Desire obedience in the seeking. Now, what do I mean by that? Jesus said, seek. When you seek something, it implies that you are doing it with a desire. 
As a matter of fact, the word translated seek is the Greek word zeteo, and it means to desire, to aim for, to strive for, and my favorite of the definitions used for that Greek word, to crave. To crave. And so I want to ask you a sobering question today, if you'll permit me for a moment, and that is this. Do you crave the things of God? Of all the things in your life that you're after, of all the things that you prioritize, of all the things that you examine and, are, and want to accomplish, where is the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Where is craving God? When I read that definition of crave, I began to do a little medical research, and we have several medical people in our church, and you could probably share with me much more than what these articles did, but I read that a craving uh, is an indication of something that's missing. When you crave salt, for instance, and sometimes I crave salt, I do. I just, I, I want to sit down with my bag of Fritos. <laughs> I do. But I've read that there's a mineral deficiency there when you crave salt. That's what I've read. I have. When you crave food, the hunger craving, did you know that in many times it's not because you need food, it's because you're dehydrated. Years ago, when you go into a public restaurant, most, most restaurants would serve you a glass of water first and foremost. They'd put it right there on the table for you. Now, there were several reasons for that. One of them is, it didn't matter the size portion you received from them, you left satisfied. Because without even knowing it, as you sipped on the water, you cured the craving for food, and when you ate whatever they gave you, you were full. Nowadays, you go in, and of course, with all the, I'd rather have the Evian or the Dasani or whatever, type of water. It's become too expensive. They don't give you water hardly anymore. You say, what are you getting at? I'm saying this, that to crave means there is something that is missing. What I'm getting at with you is this, that many of us do not crave the things of God because we won't admit something is missing. We compare ourselves with ourselves and we say that we're better than somebody else is. And therefore, by the way, the Bible says when we compare ourselves among ourselves, we are not wise. So rather than just admit the fact that we've got something missing and therefore crave the things of God in order for him to fill those things, we try to tell ourselves that we're okay and that this is normal and there's nothing wrong with this and we make excuses for why we believe the way we believe. We even go as far as telling ourselves things like, you know, the truth of the matter is God would have us provide for our family. Can I get an amen? As a matter of fact, you're right. The Bible does say that. And if you don't know the scripture, let me give it to you. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse number 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So while the word of God teaches you are to provide for your family, I ask you this question. Have you been providing for your family in a manner that has put God somewhere other than first? Because if you'll do it God's way, he said, you're going to have both. You're going to have a relationship with him that ought to be, and all these things will be added. Amen. Sometimes we take it upon ourselves, though, and we use that as an excuse. And we get everything out of place. Let me give it to you this way. If God is second on your list, he's too far down. He's too far down. So the question is, are you, have you made the decision that your family belongs to him and you're going to seek him first? That your career belongs to him and you're going to seek him first? That your business belongs to him and you're going to seek him first? Or have you taken it upon yourself to say, well, God understands. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, what he understands is obedience and disobedience. And what he has told us, he meant. 
There's a man uh, used to be in my church in Texas, and I hesitate to say much about this because I know people there still listen to the messages online, and many people do not know this. But years ago, he decided that he would not only tithe off of his income of the business that he had started, but he would tithe off of the business. And before too long, he got to the place to where his business increased. And from one shop, he ended up with five. I won't talk about the type of business he was in, but because but, uh, that'll give away to those who are listening who I'm talking about, and I don't want to do that, but because uh, he, he would have none of the glory that went with this. But, but uh, he began to tithe off of the business. And then after he retired... Did you catch that word? Retired. He continued to tithe off of what the business was doing and his tithe alone was $50,000 a year in retirement. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm just talking about where you put God. I'm talking about whether your business is where it needs to be and whether it belongs to God or whether it belongs to you. I'm talking about whether your career is what it ought to be or whether it's your career and not God's career. I'm talking about your family, yes, but I'm talking about when you put things in the proper place, God blesses and God supplies. That's what I'm talking about. There's not going to be a contradiction when you do it his way. Instead, there's going to be his blessings that are poured out. I came across a quote by David Gusick. Many of you may be familiar with him. I do not know. He's got many study tools online. He's the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Santa Barbara, California. He made this statement. I thought it was interesting. He said, a habit or a passion can only be given up for a greater habit or passion. So I ask you this, in your habits and your passion, where is God? Will you, are you willing to make him, to crave after him to the point that he becomes your habit and your passion and replaces the other thing that has been, whatever it may be? Paul said it this way, he said, I, uh, do I seek to persuade men? Galatians 1 verse 10, do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So let me ask it to you this way. Who are you trying to please? Yourself? Your family? Your children? Your spouse? Your boss? Who are you trying to please? Where is God in all of that endeavor? Should he not be first? Should he not be the top? Not among the top, but the top? Should it not all be about pleasing him? If I please him, then everything else is going to be in its place. Joshua 24, verse 15. Most of you are familiar with it. Joshua said, I tell you this about my family. My family is going to put God first. And he said it this way. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, you know what it says. What's it say? We will serve the Lord. One of the greatest things you can do as a parent is go to your children and say, you know something, we're going to live by that. We're not just going to tack it on our door or put it on our wall or have it somewhere on our computer screen. It's going to be our motto for life. We will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I love that. You say, well, pastor, you haven't mentioned my situation yet. Whatever. <laughs> whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Doesn't matter what we do. Do it to the glory of God. Now that's only going to happen if he's first. He's first. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10 reads this way. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Paul said it a little different way, something very similar. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What are you getting at, preacher? How does this have to do with what you're talking about? It has to do because the things that we worry about tend to be those things that are related to material possessions and money has a way of purchasing those things. And, and many times that occupies our mind and occupies our worry. And, and in fact, what the Bible teaches us is that if the if you have a love of money there is no satisfaction of it you got to get away from that thought and the way to do that is to put God first he's the one who has the power to give you wealth the Bible says and he can do that he can do that a survey was done of a thousand households. This is an interesting survey. Uh, I did not see any qualifying factors about how many were professing believers, how many uh, uh, were churchgoers. But, but you know, anymore in today's world, I, I don't know that statistics really change a lot, believe it or not. Uh, I know that's a sad state, but it is the state in which we live. And, and so, uh, but, but a thousand households were surveyed and, and the survey showed 64% of them placed at the very top major financial stress or concern about their financial situation. 64. You say, what are you getting at? 64% of families of the thousand households that were surveyed said, we worry about money. We worry. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm telling you, we've got to put this thing in the right perspective. We've got to put God where he needs to be in our life and stop worrying. That's what he said. Stop worrying about some of these other needs. He already knows we have need of things. Amen? Amen? Amen. It's interesting to me where, how far people are willing to go with some of this. We have a lot of young people in the service today. Let me stop for a moment and ask you a question. And be very careful with this, by the way. There comes a certain point when we, we begin to use the things God has blessed us with against him. And many times the devil will offer counterfeits. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. We find this a lot with our young people. I'm praying for a job. Will you pray for me? And oftentimes the job that opens up takes them away from the house of God. And many times, even among Christians, we say, well, that's okay, they're just getting started. Well, is it really? Can you not have a commitment that says, wait a minute, we're gonna qualify whether this is of God. Can God not provide something else that's consistent with him? Can God not do, is God really that limited? Is he really that weak? Huh? Huh? And then there are others whose careers and, and living are based on things that are against the will of God and the word of God. And, and they, they just can't bring themselves to say, I'm gonna give that thing over to God and I'm gonna look for something else. I just believe my God is able. I just believe he's able. I just believe he can provide me in a different, with a different career. He can provide me in a different way. If I put him first, I just believe he can do these things. Amen? Amen. 
No one can serve two masters, the verse previous to where we began. Matthew 6, 24, for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We try so desperately to do this. We really do. We, a, a passage like this, a sermon like this, uh, I don't need a raise of hands. I'm telling you, there are a number of people who are listening to this, whether in this building or online, who are thinking to themselves, that, that's just all hogwash. Preacher doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and somewhere, realistically, it sets in that we have to worry about these things or they'll not get done. And I'm telling you, you either take the word of God for what it says or you don't. God is either able or he's not. And the tragedy is most of us will never find that out because we won't submit to it and try it and see if he'll do what he said he'd do. Last of all, and everybody said, thank the Lord. <laughs> Number three on the list, we need discipline. We need to discipline ourselves to do the seeking. The Bible not only says to seek these things, which Im implies, again, a craving, but we're to do it first. Now, if you're going to do anything first, it means you have some deciding to do and some denying to do. Am I right? This past week, we were having some fellowship with one of our families in the church, and there were several people there. My son, he had been on the phone with some of his friends from Trinity College, and, and they were going to play ball. 10.30 at night, they were going to meet, play basketball. 10.30 at night. You got to be young to do that. I don't care who you are. <laughs> 10 30 at night. And he had asked one of the others in the group, and the other guy said, No, he said, I'd like to go, but you know, I've got another, I got a thing going on in the morning. 6 30, we play ball. So he, he had said, No, because I got this thing going on at 6 30, I can't go to this thing that you got going on at 10 30. What he was saying was this, and he had no idea, they had no idea I was preparing this message, and the Lord was using that as an illustration because here's what it amounts to. If you've got something you think is important tomorrow, you make plans tonight to make sure you're okay for tomorrow. Now, hang on, you might have said all right too soon. Because <laughs> if being in the house of God on Sunday morning is important, then being somewhere on Saturday night that allows that on Sunday morning is important. <laughs> Some of you this year, you started something called diets. I tried something earlier, and I'm having a little problem with it, and, and that's eating, uh, uh, doing away with some carbs. I like carbs. Can I get an amen? amen. I didn't even know what they were, but they're good. Good. I like a good steak. Yeah, I can do the steak thing, but the potato just got, it goes with it and the bread. And, and I, you know, I'm reminded Jesus said he was the bread of heaven. He didn't say he was the broccoli of heaven. I'm just saying. <laughs> For whatever that's worth. I don't, I don't know if that was of the Lord or not, but I'm just saying. But man, I'm telling you what, man, you gotta, if, if you're gonna do anything that, that, that prioritizes something, you gotta deny yourself, you gotta discipline yourself, am I right? And when it comes to this thing of God being first, you gotta discipline yourself, you gotta say no to certain things so that he is first. It's not gonna happen unless we discipline ourselves. 
Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me stop there for the reading, but just let me say this. And we've got people in our church, man, you guys are runners. I'm, I'm not a runner. I, and I, I, just, I remember those days. Uh, I've got a high school buddy here today, by the way, Mark and Glenda, good to have them here. And he and I went through school together and church together since we were real small together. And he remembers those days, no doubt, playing soccer together and running and running and running those horrible laps around the field all the time and conditioning. And, and, uh, and I'm not a long distance runner. I really don't quite understand the mind that says, this is fun. But I know some of you, I know some of you are. And I know when I'm in the athletic store and I'm looking for a new pair of tennis shoes, if I pick up a runner's shoe, it's like picking up a feather. It's light. I mean, it's extremely light. And if you're into that, I mean, the clothing is so light and the, everything you have is so light. Why? Because you don't want the weight. You understand if you're going to run and have the endurance and run the farthest, then you got to do away with the weight. You say, what are you saying? I'm saying that the Bible says there are sins which beset us or ensnare us. And then there are just weights. Weights are not necessarily sins. They're just stuff that hinders us. And some of us sit here and we look at a verse like this and we tell ourselves, you know, honestly, preacher, I can't see anything that, that's, that's a sin in my life. Well, I ask you, will you examine whether there's a weight there? That which is keeping you from running the race God has given to you to run. What is that race? Putting the kingdom of God out there, putting the righteousness of Christ out there in the forefront. Living for the purpose and cause of God. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 22. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be partaker of it with you. Let me pause a moment. Here's what Paul is saying. You know when I became a part of the kingdom of God, the cause of the kingdom of God became a part of me. So for the gospel's sake, this is what I do. And then he said this, he used this analogy. Do you not know that those who run in a race run all, but one receives the prize? I don't think Paul was a big fan of upward, by the way. I just thought I'd throw that in there. He said only one person wins. Not everybody gets a trophy. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable or uncorruptible crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. In the old English, he refers to it as being cast away. Here's what he said. I've learned that when you participate in an athletic event, you discipline yourselves. You tell yourself no to certain things. You condition yourself. Well, let me ask you, Shouldn't we be doing these things when it comes to the cause of Christ? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I end with this thought, Philippians 4 verse 19, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. If it's a question of you thinking that by putting God first you're going to do without, you really need to rethink this thing. Living for the Lord is 
first of all done by laying the chief cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, first. Then everything else is based on that. He doesn't want to be among your top priorities this year. He wants to be the priority. Not just this year, but every year. Jesus above all. The preeminence. The preeminence. In a message like this, there may be some here today who are not far from the kingdom of God. Maybe you've listened to this and maybe you're not quite sure whether you agree totally with everything I've said. But you would say, you know, preacher, I've never done that thing you were talking about being born again. I haven't done that. Then I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, why not take that step today? Why not today? Why not call on the Lord as it says in Romans 10 and verse 9 and 10? Why not have the imputed righteousness of Jesus transferred to you by simply confessing who he is? We have people that would love to show you from the Bible how to do that. It's a simple thing and lead you in such a prayer. Or maybe you're here today and you say, preacher, I've already taken care of that in my life. Then I ask you this, where is Christ? In your life, is he first and foremost in all that you do? First in your family, first in your career, first in your business, first in your thoughts, in your mind, in your day? Where is he? You'll not be the husband you need to be unless he's first. You'll not be the wife you need to be unless he's first. You'll not be the business owner you need to be unless he's first. You'll not be the church member you need to be unless he's first. You'll not be the neighbor you need to be unless he's first. You're not going to be the citizen of this great country unless he is first that you need to be. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, everything hinges on whether he's first. And so I ask you today to examine that. If he's anywhere other than first, bump him up, man. Put him where he needs to be today and don't wait, don't put it off. If you're here and, and, and listen, God may be challenging you to make a, a serious change in your life. I understand that and I'm not belittling that. I know it's hard, I know it's difficult and, and I've pastored many people over 30 years of pastoring and I've seen some people, not, not all, but I've seen some who were involved in a lifestyle and a type of work that was, that was bringing actually more, more honor to the devil than it was God and, and some of them made changes in their life. And God blessed. And others decided to stay where they were. And I'm sorry to say, did not enjoy the blessings of God. It's true. But because of fear, because of fear, they did not exercise the faith. I'll close with a quote that I found from an old Methodist preacher, Dr. E. Stanley Jones. He said, I am inwardly fashioned for faith, not for fear. Fear is not my native land. Faith is. I am so made that worry and anxiety are sand in the machinery of life. Faith is the oil, he said.